0: Hello and welcome to the C-SPAN in the Classroom podcast. I'm Zach and I'm joined by my colleagues Craig and Pam. May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, a time in which we recognize and celebrate the impact and contributions of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. The month originated in 1977 with the introduction of proposed resolutions by Representative Frank Horton of New York and Senator Daniel Inouye of Hawaii. However, both of these resolutions failed to pass in the respective chambers of Congress. Undeterred, Representative Horton introduced a House Joint Resolution the following year, which called on the President to proclaim a, quote, Asian Pacific Heritage Week in May 1979, according to AsianPacificHeritage.gov. Horton's Joint Resolution was ultimately passed by both the House and Senate, and President Jimmy Carter signed it into law. But you might be wondering why the month of May was chosen for this annual celebration. Let's listen to a clip of Representative Horton detailing what he calls the quote, origin of his resolution.
1: On June 30, 1977, I had the unique honor and pleasure of introducing House Joint Resolution 540 and later House Joint Resolution 1007, which for the first time in this nation's history asked the Congress and the people of the United States to set aside a period in May as Asian Pacific American Heritage Week. More than 13 years ago, a woman came to my office and told my administrative assistant, Ruby Moy and me a very compelling and perfa- per- persuasive story. I'd like to share the origin of this landmark legislation. The celebration of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month has a very deep and personal place for Jeannie Ju and her family. Their story began sometime in the 1800s when a young man, M.Y. Lee, left Canton, China to find a better uh, better life in America. Mr. Lee was one of the first Chinese pioneers to help build the Transcontinental Railroad. He later became a prominent California businessman. When the Chinese were having difficulties in Oregon, Mr. Lee traveled to Oregon and was killed during that period of unrest. It was a time of anti-Chinese and anti-Asian sentiment. The revelations about Mr. Lee and the story of American uh, Asian uh, heritage led this one woman to believe that not only should Am- Asians understand their own heritage, but that all Americans must know about the contributions and histories of the Asian Pacific American experience in the United States. Jeannie Jew, the creator of the idea for Heritage Month, is the granddaughter of M.Y. Lee, that early pioneer. The original resolution designated the week beginning May 4 as the week to be celebrated because the week included two significant occasions in the proud history of Asian Americans. May 10, 1869 a golden spike day was the day in which the transcontinental railroad was completed, largely by Chinese American pioneers. May 7, 1843 marks the date of the first arrival of the Japanese in America. Both dates will fittingly be included in Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Building
0: on its beginnings as a week-long celebration. In 1990, Congress passed a law to expand the observance to a month-long celebration. And, in 1992, enacted a law to designate May as Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. In this episode, we'll take a close look at the history and explore the culture, heritage, and just a few of the many contributions of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders.
4: Thank you for joining us for this episode. There is so much to consider as we observe Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And as we begin this conversation, a good place to start to launch the month with your students is with the arrival of the first Japanese and Chinese immigrants to the United States. We asked ourselves questions that students might be curious about as we prepared for this episode Who were the first people to arrive in this country? And when did they get here? Where did they settle? And once again, as we dove into our research and C-SPAN's vast video library archive, we discovered programs that answered those questions. Back in 2011, one of our C-SPAN teams went on location to the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles, California, and spoke with docent Bill Shishima, who gave a tour of the museum. Let's listen to the following clip as he talked about the first recorded Japanese person who arrived in the United States in 1843.
5: In 1843, the first recorded uh, Japanese landed in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, uh, Hamanosuke. And he was a shipwrecked sailor from off the coast of Hawaii. And the whaler ship picked up five Japanese men, and four of them were left in Hawaii, but Hamanosuke was brought to Fairhaven, uh, Massachusetts. So he's probably the first recorded Japanese to be here. And then in 1850, Los Angeles was incorporated. At that time, we had about 1,600 people in a square mile of 28 square miles. Today, we're about four million population, and the square mile is about 469. But California was the site of the immigrants from Japan. Port of Entry was San Francisco, and the first colony was up there in Northern California at Gold Hill, about 30 miles south of Sacramento, and it was an ill-fated wakamatsu tea and silk colony. They lasted about two years, so that was the first organized colony from Japan. Los Angeles, Little Tokyo, started when we had also a shipwrecked sailor from the San Diego area. He came up here and then in 1885, he started the first Japanese-American restaurant here in Little Tokyo.
4: This short video offers a window into how the Japanese settled in various areas of the United States, from the east coast of Massachusetts to California and Hawaii. And if I used this in my classroom, I would have students work in pairs or small groups to do follow-up research on one aspect of something that piqued their interest in the clip. What happened to the first settler? What became of the Gold Hill Colony? Or dig into the history of Little Tokyo. Describe how it evolved and what it is like today.
6: Shortly after the arrival of the first Japanese immigrants, Chinese settlers also began arriving on the west coast of the United States. In this next clip, Columbia University professor Mei Nye talks about their arrival, the jobs that were available to them, and how they were perceived by others when they arrived. Let's listen.
2: Large numbers of Chinese began coming to California in the 1850s, and they come for the California Gold Rush. They come for the same reason that everybody else is showing up in California. People from the Eastern United States, from the Southern United States, people from Mexico, from Chile, from Europe, from the, uh, from the British Isles, hundreds of thousands of people are showing up in California and it includes the Chinese. So they're not alone uh, in coming and they're coming really for the same reasons that everybody else is. They're trying to see if they can get their lucky strike.
7: And what kinds of numbers are we talking about over the the last couple of decades of the 19th century?
2: Well, in the 1850s, there's probably upwards of 20,000 Chinese who come. Um, It's not a huge number compared to the overall population, but Chinese comprise about 20% of the mining population. So, um, And by the mid-1850s, they're the largest non-white group in the mining districts.
7: And what other kinds of work did they do, or would they find? Well, you
2: know, Chinese were received, I think, in the gold fields um, with some ambivalence. You know, not, there wasn't racial conflict everywhere. People worked side by side um, and got along, but there was also conflict that was born out of competition, and the easiest way to compete with somebody else is to hurl some kind of racial slur at them, that they don't belong there, they're not Americans, uh, etc. Um, So many Chinese were, um, their claims were jumped, they were attacked. Uh, Local districts passed laws saying that Chinese could not have first ownership of a claim in those districts. So there were attempts to drive the Chinese off, off of the gold fields. But they let them back in, kind of you could say through the side door, to do jobs in the small mining towns that the miners themselves didn't want to do. Uh, Typically, it was cooking food and washing clothes. Those were uh, considered women's jobs, domestic work. And there were very few women in the gold fields in the the first decades. It was mostly men. So that's how Chinese came to work in those occupations.
6: As Professor Nye states, by the mid-19th century, Chinese immigrants were the largest non-white group in Western mining communities. However, they faced racial-based discrimination and were often relegated to certain types of jobs, primarily those in domestic trades. After playing the clip, you could have your students discuss those same points that Professor Nye shares on why the Chinese immigrated to this country, the kind of work that was available to them, and how they were treated. You could also extend the conversation to have students conduct a historical comparison of how their lives differed between their circumstances in China before they left through to how they were treated upon their arrival in the United States.
0: Returning to their experiences in the U.S., however, similar issues continued through the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, culminating in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which suspended Chinese immigration for 10 years and declared Chinese immigrants ineligible for naturalization. And 10 years later, upon the expiration of the original law, the Geary Act was passed. Let's listen to South Texas College of Law Associate Professor Josh Blackman and Professor Nye of Columbia University discuss the 1892 law.
7: Here's a little bit of what the, the Geary Act did in 1892. Expanded restrictions on Chinese immigrants required them to carry resident permits. Chinese immigrants were not allowed to be witnesses in, in legal trials. And also they could not uh, receive bail if they were arrested. So were they the Chinese really the only ones that had to carry identity papers in this country?
8: So our immigration laws,
0: what we know today, began with Chinese Americans. There weren't many immigration laws on the books before these exclusionary acts. And in the Yu Ting case in 1893, um, the court upheld the validity of this provision. And they said that the Equal Protection Clause doesn't prevent a person from being deported, right, so long as they don't have their paperwork in order. So even if the Constitution protected the Yikwo laundromat's right to stay open, it did not protect their right to be deported if they didn't comply with these laws requiring these certifications.
2: Can I add to that? Um, I think the the two um, immigration cases, um, Fang Yuting and the one that preceded it, Che Ping in 1889, those are land, really landmark cases that changed the course, not only for Chinese immigrants, but for all immigrants, and they apply today. And in these cases, the court said that immigration is a matter of national security. Before this time, immigration was understood to be under the Commerce Clause, to justify Chinese exclusion and to justify the denial of equal protection, they said immigration was a matter of national security. Therefore, it's outside the Constitution. It's in the same basket of matters that Congress regulates, like declaring war, making treaties, having re- uh, diplomatic relations with foreign countries. So in matters of entry and removal, aliens have no rights under the Constitution. None. None.
0: By using this clip in your classroom, your students could explore the history of codified U.S. immigration policies, which, as Professor Blackman states, began with Chinese immigrants. Specifically, students could explore the background and ruling of the 1893 Supreme Court case Fa-Yu Ting v. United States and its implications for both constitutional law and immigration practice and policy. Extending the discussion to the present day, your students could also compare either of the cases mentioned in this clip with contemporary judicial interpretations regarding immigration and the rights or lack thereof of aliens.
3: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach, you visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip, you ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You repel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas.
1: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
4: Zach, picking up on the points that May and I made about the United States justifying actions that it took regarding immigration and how it was a matter of national security, we can move forward to World War II and the country's entrance into the war. The Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, marked the day the United States declared war on Japan. As the country became embroiled in events that were occurring throughout the world, fear that Japan would invade the west coast of the United States began to spread in the country. Let's listen to a portion of a clip of a bell ring we have from a trip to California State University, Fresno, that talks about the action President Franklin Roosevelt took in response to this reaction among people in the United States.
9: After the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941, um, the president, Franklin Roosevelt, decided um, that Japanese Americans needed to be evacuated from all areas of the West Coast um, because Either they may not be loyal to the United States, or just seen as some kind of threat. And so they rounded up all of the Japanese Americans, including children and elderly people, and sent them to these 10 camps. So Executive Order 9066 was the executive order that authorized the um, removal of all Japanese Americans from the West Coast. And people wonder, why didn't they say something at the time? Well, they did, you just maybe didn't know about it. There were different court cases at the time. One went to the Supreme Court. That was the Fred Korematsu case, but it was denied. He lost that case. It wasn't until the 1980s that that decision was overturned, not by the Supreme Court, but by a federal court.
4: I would encourage everyone listening to go to our website and view the program from which this clip was created in its entirety. It takes you on a tour of the 9066 Japanese American Voices from the Inside exhibition and shows primary source items, artifacts, and archived footage from the Japanese American special collections so students can get a sense of what these people experienced at that time. For an extension activity, students could search for current articles on how diverse groups of people are being treated in this country, which would launch an enriching class discussion.
6: As you mentioned in the introduction, Zach, this month focuses on many aspects of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islander heritage and their contributions to this country. Overcoming the challenges each of these groups face to seek opportunities to grow and achieve goals they set for themselves, their families, and their communities that required determination, leadership, and risk, each generation striving to do better for the next, to build upon each other, to secure their place in the land of opportunity. Another sector that teachers could explore with their students this month would be the roles that Asian and Pacific Americans have played in government and politics, not just at the federal level, but at the local level as well. With that in mind, let's listen to this next clip of Representative Jane Schakowsky from Illinois talking about the career and legacy of Representative Patsy Mink, the first woman of color elected to the House of Representatives.
10: It was a woman named Patsy Mink, Patsy Takamoto Mink, who was born in um, then the Territory of Hawaii in 1927. She became a lawyer at the University of Chicago. That's my hometown. Not uh, frequent for women to do that. And in fact, she couldn't get a job, so she set up her own practice. But she got really interested in politics. And she served in the Territorial House and Senate. And guess what? The first woman ever to be in that body. She was a groundbreaker. In 1964, now this is five years after Hawaii became a state, Patsy ran for the United States Congress, the first woman of color and the first Asian American and the first uh, woman to uh, represent uh, Hawaii. So she championed early childhood education, introduced the first child care bill in Congress, and she uh, was um, a, a groundbreaker by introducing title seven, uh, title seven. This was legislation that itself was groundbreaking, an amendment to the Higher Education Act, Title IX, title, uh, title Um, ensured that women could could not be excluded from participating in school activities, participating in collegiate athletics. And believe me, this was not an easy bill to pass.
6: As an extension idea beyond having your students explore the roles that Asian and Pacific Americans have played in government and politics, could be to go to the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus site. We'll drop a link for that on our website. And here you could have your students conduct research on the mission of the caucus, who the members are, the issues they are focused on, and the projects that are being developed with their support. Students could also uh, present their findings in a class in a format of your choosing, such as a think-pair-share breakdown or through something like a Google slide presentation. And you could also have your students track a specific bill that was just passed in the House of Representatives on April 26th for first Vice Chair Representative Grace Meng's commission, Uh, to study the potential creation of a National Museum of Asian Pacific American History and Culture Act. Students could also uh, research Asian Pacific American representation in their own local or state government and share that information with the class. Just another idea to consider as your students explore the history, culture, and other contributions of Asian and Pacific Americans this month. Turning to a different
0: perspective, a few months ago I came across one of our Q&A programs that featured Mayuke Sen discussing his new book, Tastemakers. In his book, Sen profiles seven immigrant women who transformed American cuisine during the second half of the 20th century, including the woman that he features in the first chapter of his book, Chao Yung Buwei. Sen argues that Buwei was instrumental in laying the groundwork for Chinese cuisine throughout America. He also states that this shift was impacted by President Richard Nixon's 1972 visit to China. Let's listen.
7: What did that trip do to Americans' interest in Chinese food and Chinese culture?
8: Yes, that's a wonderful question. Uh, from my research, uh, I understood that so much American popular interest in Chinese cooking, in particular Chinese restaurants, really flourished in that era. And I don't think it's any coincidence that that very decade after the 1972 visit saw the rise to prominence of so many. Incredibly important figures uh, in Chinese cooking in America. Uh, there was the late restaurateur Cecilia Chang, for example, uh, who worked in California's Bay Area. There was a cookbook author named Irene Kuo, who wrote an enormously uh, popular in its era a uh, cookbook uh, in 1977 called The Key to Chinese Cooking. In 1982, uh, America saw. The, uh, the rise of Martin Yan, whose show Yan Can Cook on uh, American public television really captured the American imagination. Uh, so I do believe that uh, Nixon's 1972 visit has a great deal to do with that uh, flourishing interest uh, in the following decade.
0: In the clip, Sen discusses the impact of Boué's work and of Nixon's visit by listing several individuals who expanded the initial popularity of Chinese cooking in America throughout the 1970s and 80s, including Cecilia Chang, Irene Kuo, and Martin Nian. In celebrating Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, students could research one of the individuals that Sen describes in the clip excerpt or any of the additional people that he profiles in the whole-length nine-minute clip. Students could interview local chefs and restaurant owners to determine the local impact of Bouet and others' work in your local community. Or they could try their hand at crafting one of the recipes listed in the cookbooks that Sen discusses, with proper kitchen supervision, of course.
4: I'm going to pick up on your cookbook idea, Zach, and turn the conversation to literature. And as I researched authors to read this month, there were many suggestions. But one that stood out to me was award-winning Asian-American poet Kathy Park Hong, who was listed among Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2021. Her publication, Minor Feelings and Asian-American Reckoning, is a collection of essays in which she expresses personal experiences. In an excerpt from Ali Wong's article for Time... She writes that she, quote, "...felt like I was being shaken awake to something I had convinced myself wasn't real, the subtle ways Asian Americans are dismissed, how Asian American women feel the need to apologize when taking up any sort of space." I was also floored by how she described the ripple effect of the Chinese Exclusion Act, how that fear of not wanting to stick out has been passed down through generations and how this survival tactic limits us and can cause self-hate. I like this quote because I think it makes the past personal by showing how experiences can shape a person, and I think this can help generate a connection for students. Let's listen to Kathy Park Hong herself from one of our book TV programs.
11: I was so used to being invisible growing up uh, mm. uh, as a you know as an Asian girl, that i really loved writing because of that reason because i was like i could weaponize my invisibility i could be whoever i wanted you know i could be any character i wanted it didn't matter and then i think like i felt i got really disillusioned that in fact your identity did matter that the body that you were in did matter that you i could not escape my body i could not escape myself And I felt that most acutely, not just from writing poetry and publishing it, but when I would go and do these poetry readings. And, you know, part of it might be because I wasn't very good at reading, being a po- poet, doing my pre- poetry reading. I grant, granted that was part of it. But I think even before I went and opened my mouth and started reading poems, I was like, there was just this kind of, you know, you could feel the room, you could read the room. And I felt like there was this sort of, assumption being made about the fact that I was a small Asian woman reading poetry. I wasn't this, you know, I wasn't supposed to be in the center of the room, right? I wasn't supposed to be the singular person where everyone had to pay attention to and where I made my proclamation, you know, where I made my proclamations and so forth. And I really stumbled and I just felt that every time, even if it's not true, even if it was true, the fact that I perceived that said something about my psychological state of mind as an Asian person in this world, Mm
4: -hmm. in this,
11: in this country.
4: As a former teacher, I think this clip is a powerful example for you to show your students so they can see how personal poetry essay or free writing can be a way through which they can express their emotions, experiences, or ideas in a fluid way. An Ed Week article I recently read entitled, it can save lives. Students testify to the power of poetry talked about the power of poetry among students particularly during the pandemic, and how it provided comfort, strength, even nourishment as they tackled topics like racism. And to quote from Ali Wong's article again, it's become even more painfully relevant in a year in which anti-Asian violence, which has always existed in America, has spiked so aggressively, putting our communities on high alert and searching for solidarity.
6: As we begin to wrap up this episode, we reached out to good friend of C-SPAN, Dr. Karen Karamatsu to get her perspective on the significance of this month. As you may know, in 1942, her father, Fred Korematsu, refused to enter the mandated internment camps for Japanese-Americans following Executive Order 9066, issued by President Franklin Roosevelt. Fred Korematsu was arrested and convicted of defying the U.S. government's order. He subsequently appealed his case, and it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, the court ruled against him. Almost 40 years later, the case was reopened, and in 1983, his conviction was overturned in a federal court in San Francisco. Fred Korematsu was also awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1998 by President Clinton. And another interesting note is that in 2010, California passed the Fred Korematsu Day of Civil Liberties and the Constitution, which declared January 30th the first day of commemoration that the U.S. had named after an Asian American. Our sincere thanks to Dr. Karen Korematsu for participating in today's podcast episode and for sharing her thoughtful remarks. Let's listen.
12: Hello, I am Dr. Karen Korematsu of the Fred T. Korematsu Institute in San Francisco. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I want to make sure we include our native Hawaiian brothers and sisters in honoring and celebrating the people, history, food, and cultures of our various Asian communities. According to the most recent census, there are 24 million people of Asian descent in the United States. And the Asian population is the fastest growing group in America. It has been a difficult time in the last few years with anti Asian hate and violence on the rise. Prejudice comes from ignorance, and our most powerful tool to conquer ignorance is through education. The Korematsu Institute is a national, nonprofit education and advocacy organization. And we have been promoting ethnic studies in all 50 states. To share our differences will make us united and stronger as a country. We must learn to support each other and not repeat the mistakes of our past.
0: Two weeks after being elected senator to represent the state of Hawaii in Congress, Maisie Hirono wrote in an article, quote, As I walk to my office every morning, I know I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me no matter how you and your school communities recognize and celebrate Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. We hope that this episode and the related instructional resources that we shared will prove useful
6: for you and your students. We'd like to once again thank you for tuning in to the C-SPAN in the Classroom podcast. And as a reminder, you can view all of the video resources that we shared today on our podcast page at cspan.org slash classroom. If you'd like to connect with our team anytime, please email us at educate at cspan.org.
4: That's it for this week. This month also marks the 100th anniversary of the Lincoln Memorial. So be sure to join us next time to learn about C-SPAN resources that you can use with your students to learn about this landmark. See you next time.